Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read in verse 1 to start. This message is entitled, Kiss the Sun or Scorn the Sun. Kiss the Sun, meaning this idea of paying homage to someone as someone would kiss the ring of a king or kiss them on the side of the cheek in order to pay respect to the sense of kiss the sun or scorn the sun. And I'll explain a little bit what that means. But we come today to 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the middle of our study of, of 1 and 2 Samuel. And uh, really, we come to the climax of David's kingdom. I gave Josh the really hard things to come. So I get the, <laughs> Josh is speaking next week. I'm going away on vacation this week. But um, I said, uh, I, get, <laughs> I get the steadfast love and kindness this week, and he gets the murder and adultery next week. So is that, uh, yeah, okay, you're, you can handle that. No, uh, but let, that's what I'm saying. We come to this climax of David's kingdom where he is operating in this way where he is in so many ways directly pointing to the anointed one, the Messiah that would come one day where David's kingdom is to this point where today he reaches out in one of the most blessed and beautiful and tender stories in all of First and Second Samuel. We get the story of David blessing and reaching out in steadfast kindness to Mephibosheth, all right? Mephibosheth, can you say that? Kids, maybe you can look to someone near you and say Mephibosheth. Try it, ready? Mephibosheth. Now say it five times fast. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. <laughs> Not the easiest word to say. A little bit of a tongue twister. But we're going to learn about Mephibosheth today. And you'll be very, that word is a, is a challenging name. But if you haven't heard this story, it is incredibly encouraging and has so many direct uh, points and arrows that direct our way to Jesus Christ in the gospel in the New Testament. But we're also going to connect in just part of of 2 Samuel chapter 10. I've never seen these connections before until this week, and so we're gonna, ch- we're gonna connect them together. So let me read. I, I do wanna read this, this chapter. I-, I think it's so wonderfully laid out for us. Uh, I don't always read the whole chapter and, and into the second chapter, but I do wanna take time to read that and-, and allow it to soak in of what's going on, David's kindness to Mephibosheth. So chapter nine, verse one. You can follow along on the screen or if you have a Bible with me, I'm reading in the CSB. It says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness uh, to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness of God to? That word kindness, there's steadfast love or a chesed love, this sense of deep-rooted kindness. Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. He was crippled. You'll see that mentioned a few times. Verse four, the king asked him, well, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodibar, son of Machir, son of Amiel. Verse five, so King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Mephibosheth, 
son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. You see all three are mentioned there. Jonathan, Saul, and David. Mephibosheth fell down and he paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid. David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness and steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore you to you all of your grandfather's Saul's fields and you will always eat at my table. Number one, that's the first time he mentions that. You'll see it come up again. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? So notice Mephibosheth's response is to pay homage, or the word would be to kiss the son, to to pay homage, or to kiss the king, the sense of paying homage and respect and honor. And he views himself as a dead dog. Why would you look down to me as a dead dog? Why would you help me? I'm nothing but a dead dog. Verse 9. Then the king summoned Saul's attention, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you're to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Number two. Now Ziba had 15 sons and servants, and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Number three, third time he says that. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. Ah, see I told you it's a tongue twister. Verse 13, however, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because, number four, he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. Let's keep reading in chapter 10. I want you to notice some of the similarities to begin in chapter 10 as to the beginning in chapter nine. I'll explain in a moment. Chapter 10, verse one. Sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died. It was the enemy, Ammonites. And his son, Hanun, became king in his place. Verse two, then David said, I'll show kindness, steadfast love. I'll show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Notice he begins in the same manner. Can I show steadfast kindness to Jonathan? Because Jonathan was kind to me. Does he have a son that I can show kindness to? Now here, an enemy king has died and Well, because he had showed kindness to me in the past, is there a son of him that I can show kindness to? It's so similar. The wording is actually very, very similar in the the original. But it says, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanun concerning his father's death. However, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leader said to Hanun, the Lord, just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe He's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, demolish it? You can hear them whispering in his ears. Verse four, so Hanun took David's emissaries who were there to provide condolences. He shaved off half their beards. He cut off their clothes and half at the hips and then he sent them away. And when this was all reported to David, he sent someone to meet them. 
since they were deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back and then return. And then the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David. Yeah, no duh. They hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans of Beth Rehob and Zobah, 1,000 men from king of Makkah and 12,000 from Tob and all of this. And David heard about it and sent Joab and all the elite troops or the mighty men. And this, then what we're going to get is a war is about to happen between these two sides. So you can skip ahead with me. There's some battle formations that are going on. We just don't have time. And then verse 17. And then this was reported to David. He gathered all of Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. Then the Arameans lined up to engage David in battle and fought against him. This is verse 17. And verse 18 says, the Arameans fled before Israel. David killed 700 of their charioteers. There's this massive war that went on, 40,000, all this. Then verse 19, when all the kings who were with Hadadezer's subjects saw this, that they had been defeated by Israel and King David, they made peace with Israel and became their subjects. And after this, the Arameans were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. Let me open in prayer. Father, we think of these words. We ask God that you would teach us truth from this. Lord, challenge us from, where, from our own thinking. Challenge our way of doing life. Lord, help us to be challenged by your truth and your word and through the light of your scripture today. May your spirit fill us, transform us, and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Kiss the king or scorn the king. Kiss the son or scorn the son. What's the story of your life? A few weeks ago we talked about comedy or tragedy. We talked about this idea of Saul and David, the the tragedy of Saul and the comedy of David. Not comedy in a humorous sense, but in the happy ending, right? The comedy has this happy ending to it. Tragedy has, well, a, a tragic ending, does it not? And we can think about life often in these ways where we are people who are a storied people. We are people of story. Whether you realize it or not, you see life, you see your purpose on this planet through the lens of a story. The question is, what story is that, you could say? Whether it is through Christ and the Christian narrative and the story of the Bible, which I would say is not a story, but is a true story, or as Francis Schaeffer would say, is not a truth, but is a true truth, okay? It's not something that just exists. It is the truth, the Bible, the Word of God, the Christian story, the narrative of the Hebrew Scripture and the, uh, and the Greek New Testament that is combined here. What we have is the Word of God presented to us is the story, but whether we see life through that story or not, many others see life through a variety of stories and see their purposes through that. But in our story, in our life, the way we see it as we come through life's way, we will often be presented with a way, with a decision, with a choice. This has been somewhat of a theme throughout this entire series because it's often pitted against one another, Saul or David. Which one will you choose? There is always a temptation presented to us. Maybe you, you feel that, that in life you're always plagued with this temptation to pursue a way that you know is not right or pursue a direction that you know leads the wrong way or, or to pursue the, the way of Christ as Jesus and his followers in the New Testament are called followers of the way, the way of Jesus as we are disciples following Jesus. Are, are we following? Which path are we on, you could say? And often within us, everyone knows that feeling, the tug at our soul, the very, the, the very inner 
beings, our passions and lusts drawing us one way and the war that exists between the two and the spirit of life that comes and conquers them. The way of righteousness and truth. Many novels, literature, and movies and always go and, and explore this theme. We've talked about it the last couple of months, but this exploration of a, of a hero's journey. As they, along the hero's journey, they, they face temptation. And are they the hero that will avoid the temptation of sin to make them no longer the hero capable of saving the world? Or will they be drawn away by their lust and their desire? and be just like the enemy that they're trying to defeat. We see that narrative throughout scripture, throughout storylines that we see the world through. Any Marvel movie follows this same thing. We think of great works of literature. There's a work of literature um, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's called Crime and Punishment. Maybe his more famous one is Brothers of Karamazov. But the Crime and Punishment explores this very idea there's a main character called Raskolnikov, and he is, it's a psychological thriller of a novel, if you can get through the really long aspects of it in the old words. But this idea that he is facing, Raskolnikov, is uh, you're, you're living in the mental uh, headspace of the main character of the whole book. And he's constantly waging war in his minds with this temptation to do a great sin and to flirt with this murder that's within him. And he contemplates at the beginning of the book of what it would be like to, to, to commit a grave act of sin and wickedness. And eventually he murders two people in the book and then he seeks to try to hide it. And people are hunting him down and it's this thriller of, in his mind, this sense of which path is it that he'll take? And even when he's caught in prison, what is it that he will choose? Will he ask forgiveness? Will he be sorry for it? Will he, as Brian was saying, was, would he be forgiven? And there's this war that you get to experience throughout the book of exploring the psychological aspects of, of the paths that are warring within us, you could say, in many ways. I, I grew up with a phrase that was often repeated at church. There's, there's two choices on the shelf, right? You, you ever heard this, maybe? I don't know. It was, maybe it was a kid's thing. Two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Some of you know it. Yeah, good job. Pleasing God or pleasing self, right? Very simple, very... Very almost so simple, but I think life can be very simple. The word of God says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road uh, broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. But how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few will find it. The scripture does this in a variety of places. There are two ways, two paths. There are two trees. One good tree bears good fruit. One bad tree bears bad fruit. There are two foundations. One is built on the rock, and that will stand. One is built on the sand. You could say the mud of mud season that will be washed away, right? We know that there's two foundations. There's a light. There's a dark. There's, there's the wheat and the tares. There's the chaff as it is blown away, and the wheat that is taken and is useful. And I recently heard this idea spoken about on a podcast, where they were talking about this idea of what the story of your life. Is it a comedy or a tragedy? And it speaks into exactly what I think we're thinking of, the lens of the story of what the truth is and what it isn't. Psalm chapter one and Psalm chapter two describe this in greater detail than I can do for you in a much better way. But Psalm chapter one begins with two ways, two ways presented to us. 
Happy is the one who does not walk in the way or the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord and his instruction and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. But those who choose the way of the wicked will be like a chaff that is in the wind that is blown away. There's a tragedy, there's a comedy. Psalm chapter two, the one I'm referencing today for today's title as it speaks into our storyline for today. Psalm chapter two is a, is a royal psalm and a messianic psalm melted into one. It speaks of David, it speaks of Jesus, it speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah in verse two of Psalm two. Then it says that God installs his king, the coronation of the great king of Israel. He is coronated and he is crowned king and he stands on the mountain, the holy mountain of God in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And it is there that God has installed his kings. And yet the nations will rage against the king. They will scorn and laugh against him. They will build their armies and come against that holy mountain. They will seek to destroy him and pull him down and mock him in his pride, but it is God who has installed him and it is God who keeps him and enthrones him. And we know that this king will reign victorious over all for all time. And it's in verse 10 that, that we, we hone into today. Psalm 2 verse 10. It says, so now kings, be wise. It's almost like pay attention. Those of you who are in charge of something, a king, a president, a ruler, a director, and you could say, those of you who are acting like you are the king of your heart, be wise. And in some ways, this is going to be a warning to you and an encouragement to continue on the path of righteousness. Because he says, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. He's, he's tempering it because he says in verse 11, Serve the Lord with reverential awe or fear. Fear the Lord and rejoice with trembling. Why? Because verse 12, some of the traditional ESV, KGV, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Here in the CSB it says, pay homage to the son. It's the same concept. We talked about it in Mephibosheth. Kiss the son, pay homage to the son. Kiss the king, this idea, right? What does he say? Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. Speaking of a king, for in his anger he may ignite at any moment and yet at the end, all who take refuge in him are happy and blessed. This is the Beatitudes. In the kingdom of God, you are blessed are you who right. all you who take refuge in him are happy. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry. And so we get this sense of what does that mean? What is this anger? What do we, this is a warning to the judges of the earth. Those who take refuge with him, who choose the path of respect and honor and love for our great king will find happiness and peace and life. So we, we look back, taking that in your mind and, and, and using that as a framework and a storyline for this story that we just read in 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9 is ultimately the sense where David has united the kingdom. He's taken the throne. He's claimed Jerusalem as his capital city, the Mount Zion. He brings the Ark of the Covenant there. He restores worship. He wants to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant, but God says, no, your son will build me a house. And yet God makes a covenant with David and says, I'm gonna build you a house. 
It's this messianic prophecy where Jesus will be born as the son of God and in the line and lineage of David, as we read in Luke, described as a son of David. He will take the throne of David as Israel and the Jewish nation will become the vehicle to bring salvation to the entire world, whereby his kingdom is received through faith alone today, where his righteousness and sacrifice, it's credited to us as our righteousness through faith because of his great love and grace. It's this offer of salvation to join the kingdom of God because of his love and steadfast love, his loving kindness. And David is greatly strengthened at this point. In chapter eight, we we look at chapter eight, he has all of these victories over the surrounding nations. He's protecting God's people. He's securing his borders. And the word says that the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So the Lord guiding, the Lord directing. The Lord made David victorious, not David. And so it's this pinnacle that we'll see some of his downfall next week in the coming weeks where David allows, unfortunately, a lot of this to go to his head. And at this point, we see him acting and operating in such a way where we see him acting in a messianic way, the anointed one. And where he, in a beautiful way, instead of doing what we would expect any king to do, 2 Samuel 8 speaks about these victories that he has. He's securing his borders. He's consolidating his power. Any normal king would come to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and think to himself, how can I find different lines of competing interest to my throne and how can I stamp them out in a Stalinist-esque way, if you know what I mean? How can I find people from the line of Saul that still exist so I may kill them and get rid of them? for they might compete for my throne. That's what normal kings would do. Consolidate their power, protect their royal lineage and line through the destruction of those who would compete against him. And yet, in a very Davidic way, he does the exact opposite. Is there any people still around from Jonathan and Saul that I could bless and show kindness to? And they must be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What are you talking about? And so he chooses to show steadfast love and kindness. And he does the same thing in almost a very strange and, uh, way as well. He, he sees the king of the Ammonites. And yet in some way, that king, Nahash, uh, has, has shown kindness to, it's actually not recorded, but David speaks of it, uh, of this kindness that he had shown to him probably when he was running from Saul at some point. And David says, how can I show my condolences? How can I go to his funeral and send him flowers, you could say? How can I be sorry that his father has died? How can I show him kindness Steadfast love, and yet when Hanun receives this kindness, receives this grace, when he receives the condolences of David the king, the anointed one of Israel, when he receives that, he throws it back in his face. He scoffs him, you could say, slaps him across the face. He scorns him. He takes their beards and cuts them in half. He makes a mockery, a public humiliation of those emissaries as they send back half naked in front of the people. This is extraordinary contrast. Mephibosheth, a dead dog who can do nothing for himself, crippled and lame, comes to David, and David anoints him, and in some ways, it's this member of his family, you could say. He brings him into the family of God and sits him at his table, feeds him food, and blesses him like his very own son. And I think in some ways today, I'm hoping you can see yourself in one of those two pictures. I'm hoping we can see ourselves in these two paths. What is it that we will choose to do? What is it that we are going to see pressed in front of us? Are we going to kiss the son and pay homage to him and find life because of his grace and steadfast love? Or are we going to reject the son? The kindness is there in both stories. You see that? 
The grace is there in both stories. The steadfast love is there. So let's just take a little bit of a closer look and then we'll kind of wrap up some of these ideas. But closer look in chapter nine. He says, how can I show kindness to? This is the sense of showing kindness to a royal heir here. This kindness is the word, I've already mentioned it. It's chesed in the Hebrew. It's that, like, that strange kind of phrase to say, but this chesed, steadfast love, loving kindness, it could mean grace, loyalty, faithfulness, love, mercy, goodness. It's a very deep and complex Hebrew word. It's one of those things when, when in Psalm, uh, when it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, and you know that Psalm, I can't remember what it is, I don't know if it's 136 or not, but it repeats it over and over and over and over and over and over, you know? It says it over and over. That's the same word there. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, over and over and over. Here, this is the same word as he's speaking about. How can I show this steadfast love to someone else? And then he, he goes to Ziba. Ziba speaks to him. In fact, Ziba and Mephibosheth, two names you keep in your mind, because when we get to it in a couple of chapters, you'll see how Ziba and Mephibosheth will come up in the story again. Ziba seems to act in some duplicitous, untrue ways, but we'll, we'll look into that. And so we see Mephibosheth, his name is fascinating, and where he lives is also fascinating. Mephibosheth, his name, and names me are very important in the Bible. Uh, names are very important. What they mean often carry double meaning in many different ways. But Mephibosheth, his name means ultimately one who scatters shame. Or, or potentially the translation could be from the mouth of shame. Okay, that. So I'm just, if you're parents who are looking to have a child, so if you're looking for a name, uh, my recommendation is this is probably not the greatest name. But Mephibosheth this from the mouth of shame, right? And we see Lodibar is this place where he's living. Um, the, the sense of it is nothing. <laughs> Lodibar ultimately means no name, it's a place of nothingness. It's a small, dinky town in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like how they used to refer to Jesus of Nazareth. How could good things come out of Nazareth? That's a, a no-name, no-good-for-nothing town, right? Uh, how could this Lodibar have a royal son be living there? But well, he's been scattered in shame. He's from out of the mouth of shame, from King Saul's line that has been cut off. Jonathan has been killed in battle. King Saul has been killed in battle. And we see this extremely fascinating way for what we know about Mephibosheth, primarily what we know about him is he's living from the mouth of shame and he's living in a place of nothingness, of no-nameness. And then we see the story of his condition. And it's mentioned to us several times that he is crippled. His legs are lame. And we look back in 2 Samuel 4, and I mean, if you already knew this, right? But now, if you were reading, you know how they told you that this happened. In 2 Samuel 4, this is the assassination of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, has been assassinated. But, but it, it's around that time when Saul's son, Ishbosheth, chapter 4, verse 1, heard that Abner had died. In Hebrew, he gave up, and all of Israel was dismayed. And there's kind of fear among Saul's house. They're kind of abdicating the throne and, and David's taken over and there's this kind of civil war. Do you remember that? We talked about it a few weeks that's going on. Verse four says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. This is 2 Samuel 4, 4. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So, so get this, his, his nanny hears about the report and and that his son, uh, that Jonathan, his father, and, and 
Saul, his grandfather, have died in battle. And his nanny picked him up and fled and was running. And while she was hurrying to flee, he fell and he became lame. He broke his legs or potentially his spine. We don't know. His, his name was Mephibosheth. And again, the name, it means out of the mouth of shame. And in a sense, there's this feeling of great shame upon this storyline until we see in chapter nine, the shame is reversed. <laughs> this story of death and, and the story of sadness and the story of crippled nature where it is not as if today in our society in which we have the ability for, for access for handicapped people in so many more ways that in that day and in that time, especially for a son of the, the house of Saul to be ostracized from the community, to be separated from any blessing or inheritance. Do you, are you starting to see the connections? This one's an easy one to preach. There's so many connections, it's almost hard to figure out which one to focus on. The connections are so fascinating to the New Testament and our own condition apart from Christ. Mephibosheth comes to David and says, I am your servant. I am a dead dog. David says, do not be afraid. You notice that's the first kind of, don't fear. What is Mephibosheth fearing? He's fearing a public execution. No, no, no. I'm not here to harm you. I want to show you love on behalf of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you your inheritance. I'm going to give you all of the fields and the blessings and the wealth of your grandfather, Saul. Now, I know you can't manage these things on your own, but I'm going to give you a servant. His name is Ziba. He was in your father's house and he served your father. He's been serving me, but he will now serve you. You will, in many ways, operate as part of the royalty in this family. And then not only that, I'm not going to just send you to a part of the, na- of the, of the country. I'm now going to welcome you for dinner at my table every single day. You may eat as one of my very own sons. That's quite the change of position, is it not? That's quite the story. Four times, you notice when we read it. Four times, he says, you will eat at the king's table. Mephibosheth, from the mouth of shame, living in nothingness, now it says in verse 13, he lives in Jerusalem, the holy city of God. <laughs> the place where the king has built a palace, the place where the temple will be constructed, where the ark resides. And then not only that, but he has wealth and inheritance given to him. He has blessing and favor and he becomes part of the royal court. <laughs> he sits at the king's table like David's own son. What a gracious king. What an act of king, anointed one of God. Jesus, in similar manner, in greater manner, in greater ways, as we see often this sense of this pathway forward that just expands where David in in the seat is, is, is like a foreshadowing of what is to come. We are just like Mephibosheth, at least. I, I see myself like that in, Apart from Christ, I am crippled, lame, unable to walk or take care of myself, unable to save myself, living in nothingness, 
And my Messiah, my anointed one comes to me, welcomes me, invites me, adopts me into his family, gives me the blessing of the kingdom of God to sit from nothingness into greatness into the city of Jerusalem that one day will be our life. Revelation is the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and heaven and earth collide. We sit now at his table. We every month we come to the table. As I'll make the joke sometimes, as one big happy family, right? (laughs) We eat of the table, the bread and the wine is dispensed. We celebrate the bread of Jesus, the body of Jesus which is given, his blood which is shed for us. May we partake together in fellowship in communion through the Spirit of God. What an extraordinary story of Jesus saving and rescuing us. And the question, the main point really is ultimately for you today is that you are welcome at this table. I guess the only condition would be in some ways our humility that is so obvious The humility of Mephibosheth, of willing to say, I am your servant, I humble myself before you, and I bow my knee before the king of kings. And the the way that Hanun responds is directly in contrast to that. The Ammonites and Hanun, he does not bow his knee. He's one of the ones who takes Jesus and spits on him and slaps him in the face and whips him in the back. He's he's the sinner that is within all of us that we all are facing as we begin the two ways of life, the two directions that we are faced with. Are we going to kiss and honor the son or are we going to scorn him, crucify him, and mock him? And that... The driving force of this entire passage, I think, is, is very much a warning. And yet, as your pastor, I, I always want to challenge you and encourage you and give you courage to continue on the way, to pursue your relationship with Jesus and honoring him in all that you do. We come here to church not to look at any one person, but to honor and give praise and worship to him. That is all that we're here for. We are a bunch of Mephibosheths that have no business in the place of the church, but are welcomed in because of everything that Jesus has done for us on the cross, because our anointed one has welcomed us, adopted us, redeemed us, saved us, sanctified us, encouraged us, and changed us and transformed us. It's because of him that we say, we are your servants, and yet, we're warned. We're warned in Psalm 2, 12, kiss the son lest he be angry, lest the result of his wrath is poured out upon you instead of the cross, lest you receive what you receive. The mockery and the derision and the contempt and disdain for God has one result and one result only. I don't like preaching these things. I don't enjoy speaking into this aspect of warning, but I know someone needs to hear that today. The path that you are on either leads to life or destruction. David offers you, Jesus offers you steadfast love, grace and kindness and mercy. Honor him, respect him, and you will be saved. 
We see in, in, in Revelation 19, we see in Revelation 19 the storyline of this picture presented to us, this great rider on a white horse. He rides into victory formation in this battle that is waging against the workers and the beast and the Satan and the, the aspects of darkness. And the rider on the white horse that rides into battle, his name is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He rides in on a donkey in Palm Sunday, which we will discuss in a few weeks. But one day, he will ride in on a white horse, not seeking to offer peace and salvation and offer himself as a sacrifice, but rather to bring judgment. And we know that one day he will ride victorious. The kings will push up against him. The kings will seek to mock him. The kings will seek to scorn him and to rage against him in his kingdom. We know the end of the story. We know that Christ is the way. (laughs) We must take heed, I guess the word is, lest we be cut off from him and the way of God. I want to close with this word in Philippians chapter 2. It's been the phrase that's been running through my head in some ways as we've, but I did want to close with it. And I think you had already sensed it and heard this sense where Jesus makes of himself as a humble servant and he dies on a cross. He takes our sin and shame. This is the gospel message presented to you today that you can have all of that shame, that low debar and that Mephibosheth. You can have all of that taken to Jesus and he can take it as Colossians says and he nails your debts as we said, forgive us our debts. He takes that debt and he nails it to the cross. His blood is poured out. The wrath of God is consumed upon him and he is able to make substitute, to make payment. The word would say in the Old Testament and the New, it is that he is able to make atonement so that you can be sanctified, be clean, to be washed and to be healed. The gospel message of love and grace and invitation to anyone who would confess the name of Jesus shall be saved. Anyone. Because of passages like Philippians 2, that, what I just said, is a blessed invitation of grace and mercy, but it is also a warning for those who decide to say no. Because in verse 10 it says, or verse 9 really, Philippians 2, but it says, this reason we've highly exalted him, given the name that is above every name, and then verse 10 says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pay homage to the Son lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion and anger but all who take refuge in him, all who take refuge in Jesus Christ will be blessed and will be saved. Let us close in prayer. Father, we come before you. We give you honor and glory today. We pray, God, for your grace to go out today through your spirit, things that I cannot do and accomplish. Lord, we're here here to deliver your word, (laughs) to point us to the Holy Scripture today. God, change us. Renew us. Save us. Make us new. God, we know that the old man has passed away. Behold, the new will come. We pray, God, for for vision to see the way, 
to see your way. And God, that our way would be removed and we would get out of the way. You be glorified today. Thank you, God, for the the prayers that have been prayed, the worship that has been sung, the people who have gathered, the children who have been instructed and loved. God, thank you for the offer of salvation. By grace alone, we are saved. Thank you, Lord, for that word, for that truth. God, we praise you and we bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.